testing, testing, one, two, three. This is my voice under the blanket. How does it sound now? Welcome to The Willing Fool. I'm your host and lead fool, Paul Trimble. We're going to continue on today from where we left off last episode, looking at examples in the book of Mark where Jesus is acting, Jesus is speaking, and there are hints, there are clues, there are echoes of scriptures that we are meant to call forth to understand that this is what's being referenced and to bring all that context into the forefront of our hearts and the forefront of our minds as we read so that we can actually see what picture is being painted. I think, again, to repeat, for most of us, whether you're in a community of faith or not, whether you're a believer or not, we grew up and we had whatever response we had, but oftentimes without even understanding what we were reading, what we were looking at, and what was being said. And so, again, whichever camp you're in, it's worth really listening. And we're heeding here an encouragement, an admonition, or warning from Jesus that the difference between listening well and not listening well is the difference between a hundredfold fruit and no fruit at all. So if you heed that hint, that point at all, then you want to be a great listener. A great listener is a great student. So we're picking it up here in Mark 6. This is is Mark 6, verse 34. Do I have the right passage? Okay. So, famous event. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. People ran there by land from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. So as he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it was already late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness and it's already late. Send them away so they can go into the sounding countryside and villages to buy something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. When they find out, they said, five and two fish. Then he instructed them all to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks of hundreds and fifties. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was filled. Then they picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, once again, like the incident we talked about in the last episode with the calming of the waves and wind, you might look at this and just think, oh, this the only value of this story is, wow, what a great miracle worker Jesus was. I guess this is meant to just prove to me how incredibly powerful he was and that anything else he said was true. Well, that's one surface level reading that you could do. But once again, there are echoes of other scriptures that are here that really help you understand what picture is being painted of Jesus and what is being said about him. 
So for this one, we're going to go back to Ezekiel chapter 34. And this is Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the days among the scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them into their own land. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will attend them with good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. So here you have God in the role of being a shepherd. And what does he say? He wants to gather his sheep. Does it describe what kind of sheep they are? Yeah, they're scattered. He's going to look for them. These are scattered sheep. They need rescuing. They're they're in trouble. They're in need of leadership. They're in need of a shepherd. And God is that shepherd. And what does it say about Jesus? He saw a huge crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And just as God has the sheep sitting down and eating in good pasture, being taken care of, being fed, that is what Jesus is doing. He is feeding people. And so what's being said? What kind of picture is being painted of Jesus? Well, God's the shepherd of his scattered sheep. He feeds them. Jesus is the shepherd of the scattered sheep. He feeds them. And you get this rich connection that if you don't know what's there in Ezekiel 34, it's hard to really pick up on what's going on here. Uh, I'm going to keep going in Mark chapter 6 because immediately after this, there's another incident uh, that has echoes of previous scriptures. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. He saw them being battered as they rowed because the wind was against them. Around three in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea and wanting to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. So you have this interesting scene. Once again, if you just take it at, hey, this is a miracle and it's just meant to be this, you know, one in a series of miracles. You can kind of miss all that's going on here. But Jesus is walking on the water, reaching his disciples, about to pass them by. They're confused. They don't recognize him. And after he gets in the boat, the wind ceases and they're just left there dumbstruck. They're astounded. They don't know what to think. Kind of like that earlier uh, storm on the water incident where they're like, who is this? They, they're just, they're left dumbstruck and they don't know how to have a good response. And I think we as the reader are meant to be in, not literally, but metaphorically the same boat with them thinking, look at this picture. 
And again, this is not the kind of communication where things are just being laid out. Hey, here's what you need to believe. Here's what you need to do. No, no. It's it's more than that. It's This is a picture meant to uh, reach all of us, not just our, our right brain, but our left brain, not just our mind, but our heart, and to see what is happening as well as what is being said. Well, one of the most interesting references here is from Job 9, 8. And I will totally confess this is one I've never heard or made myself. I only found it in, again, this book that I'm telling you is a great book for you to read, Richard Hayes' Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. Um, but let me go ahead and find that. It's Job chapter 9, verse 8. And it's talking of God, saying, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Treads as in walking on the waves of the sea. He makes the stars, the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, the constellations of the southern sky. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. If he passes by me, I wouldn't see him. If he goes right by, I wouldn't recognize him. Now, this is what's fascinating is not only the image of God treading on the waves. Again, you've got this idea of God being the one in control of the waters in a way that no human is. But there's also this passage of if he passes by me, I wouldn't see him. Well, you heard that in the story. If he goes right by, I wouldn't recognize him. And actually, this this connection of God passing by and and not recognizing or not knowing what's going on is something that is also elsewhere in Scripture. So you have God passing by Moses in Exodus 33 and 34 saying, nobody can see me and live. There's this idea of um, you can't look at me directly and see exactly who I am, which goes right hand in hand with what we're talking about this entire season of truths and mysteries that are are important, but that are not obvious. They have some ambiguity. Um, And so Jesus here is in that role of passing by the disciples and being unrecognized. Who is it that walks on the sea? Well, we know, we know that's, that's God, right? And here, here it is Jesus who's doing it. Interestingly enough, what does Jesus say when he's passing him by? He says, have courage. It is I. Now to you and me, English speakers, we're not going to realize that there it is I, when that's said in the Greek, what Mark's written in, it's the same phraseology as would be used in the Greek when God in Exodus says, I am. When God gives his name and says, I am, that's the same thing. What Jesus is saying here, it is I. Um, wouldn't expect that most of us would pick that up without having somebody point it out to us. But once you know it, you know it. You can see that as part of the picture. It is I. Who's walking on water? Jesus. Who walks on water? Who's passing by and they can't recognize him? All these things are meant to to be part of the picture as we see the disciples being completely astounded because they could not understand this picture of Jesus is being formed. But it's in a way that is simply not what we would do. If we move on a little to Mark chapter 7, there's an incident with a deaf man. We're going to look at that in verse 31 of chapter 7. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who also had a speech difficulty and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd privately. After putting his fingers in the man's ear and spitting, he touched his tongue. 
Then looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. Immediately his ears were opened, his speech difficulty was removed, and he began to speak clearly. Then he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. They were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He even makes deaf people hear and people unable to speak talk. So Jesus performs this miracle. Once again, there's the miracle level. We could just look at it as one in a series of miracles. The reference here is Isaiah 35. And it isn't directly quoted, but it could easily be conjured to mind if you're very familiar with it and you read this story of this deaf and mute man being healed. Um, So let me read this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. This is Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. The water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool of water and the thirsty land springs of water. So there's this image of great things happening in the land of Israel. The eyes of the blind opened, the mute being able to to speak. You have the replenishment and flourishing of the land itself. All this is part of the imagery of the return from exile, God's blessing on his people, all these things that people were waiting for. And here you have Jesus being the agent and the one who is bringing that about. And if that's not enough, actually a bit earlier, a couple verses earlier than what we just read, it says, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees, say to the cowardly, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. And so not only are these miracles happening in this image, but it's directly God who is the bringer of this transformation, who is the bringer of all these good deeds, these things that are happening. And so once again, you'll see the commonality, the common theme. Here's Jesus in this role that everybody understands. This is this is who God is. This is what God does. And so with the disciples, we're there with our mouths open thinking, all right, well, who who is then this person? We're going to look at one more. This is from Mark 11, so we're skipping ahead a little. And I wanted to read several examples so you could see this is not just a one-off thing or cherry-picking, but it is really very relevant to the way the entire book is written. Mark 11, verse 12 through 14. The next day when they came out from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, but because it was because it was not the season for figs, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, immediately after this, there's the famous incident where Jesus goes and clears out the temple complex. And he says, then he began to teach them. This is in the middle of him throwing over the tables and the money changers tables um, and the chairs. He began to teach them. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priests and scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. And immediately after this, they come out early in the morning as they were passing by. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, 
the fig tree you cursed is withered. So you've got the clearing out of the temple, the direct confrontation with the temple authorities. And on either side of that, serving as bookends, is this incident with the fig tree, where first the fig tree is cursed, and then because it has no fruit, has no figs, and then after the temple incident, the fig tree is observed to have withered. Now, when Jesus said that little, you know, I assume it's paraphrased, probably condensed message, it'd be hard to imagine him saying only two sentences while he throws over chairs and tables, but he directly quotes Isaiah and he directly quotes Jeremiah. No coincidence, since Jeremiah was known to directly do something very, very similar with a direct confrontation to the temple and the temple authorities, confronting the way that it was being handled and what values were being upheld and what values weren't being upheld. But Jeremiah is directly quoted by saying, you have made it a den of thieves. That's straight from that confrontation of Jeremiah to the temple authorities at the temple in Jeremiah 7 and 8. Well, if you go back and read Jeremiah 7 and 8, we're not going to read it together. But if you read a little bit further into Jeremiah 8, verse 13, I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. This is so that was God speaking. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. And so here you have the fig tree. Obviously, it's metaphorical, just as I think it is as well in the gospel account. Um, not to say there isn't a fig tree, but the fig tree obviously represents more than just a fig tree. And here in Jeremiah 8, right next to the passage where Jesus quotes from a temple confrontation, as he's doing a temple confrontation, and God in Jeremiah 8 is looking for figs on the fig tree to no avail. And who is looking for figs on the fig tree to no avail? You know, in this passage in Mark, obviously, Jesus is in that role. So hopefully, uh, maybe this is beating a dead horse at this point, but wanted to show the pattern that over and over. There's a way of saying things without saying them explicitly. There's a way of hinting and alluding to a context that we are meant to know and have access to, but that we might have to make a lot of extra effort in the way of, of listening well, having people show and teach of what is being said and how it's being said. Jesus is apparently okay with, and Mark is apparently okay with, not making everything super explicit and even hiding or partially hiding some things and waiting for the attentive listener who once again will be rewarded 30, 60, or 100 times over. Those who invest generously will be given generously to, paraphrasing, the attentive listener. That's the one who will be rewarded with this hundredfold crop. Those who don't listen well may experience no fruitfulness. That's a massive difference. I'm setting up here what we're going to talk about in the next episode, which is kind of the granddaddy of all these examples. I want to read Jesus' long speech in Mark 13. There's a similar one in, in Matthew and Luke as well. Um, but it's it's a, it's a kind of a granddaddy out of all these examples. It's long. It's important. You've got massive things happening that are clearly of great importance. And I think this passage has been really not 
we haven't done a great job listening to it and listening to Jesus and getting what the references are and thinking through, well, what does that mean then? And what is this passage even about? And I think it's some pretty large ways to where we've oftentimes very badly misunderstood what is it about and in a way that is not just irrelevant or just kind of a matter of some un, unconsequential interpretation, but really is is pretty important for what Jesus' entire message and significance was, and therefore the message and significance of Christianity, of gospel message. And again, hopefully I'm able to be able to speak to both people who are listeners but not of a belief, people who are listeners who are of a belief, but in either case, what we might share is not having heard some of this stuff um, very well the first time around or the second or third time around. But it's never too late, is it, to be a great listener, um, to hear something new. We've got to be willing to be a fool or at least look or seem a fool so that we can grow wise. And sometimes that means admitting that we know less than we think we do. Um, So that's a good thing. We're going to keep at it. Thanks for joining me this time. Please, please, please join next time. It's going to be good, pretty intense, maybe challenging, but in a great way. We'll learn together. So thanks for joining. See you next time.